This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today, we'll be talking to Karen Stolzno, author of On the Offensive, Prejudice in Language, Past and Present, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to New Books and Language, Karen. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Thanks for coming on. Let's dive in with what your book's main goal is. It focuses on offensive language, as the title Mm -hmm. says. What is it that you're trying to do in the book, and why did you think it was important to write? Well, I think sometimes people might think offensive language is profanity, so uh, swear words, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, But I think there's a new interpretation of offensive right now. One of the most offensive categories of uh, of, of language are insults related to uh, racism and to to insults and, and slurs and terms that abuse people on the basis of uh, some kind of intrinsic factor. Uh, so people who belong to various groups, whether it's uh, ageism or sexism or racism or some other kind of ism. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of offensive language that I'm talking about. So this has been a topic I've researched for about 20 years. I've been interested in insults and, and slurs. And uh, so certainly there are two different kinds of offensive language. We can have very overt forms of offensive language like insults and slurs, but then we can have more covert forms. So uh, that's things like stereotypes and maybe outdated terminology uh, microaggressions, tropes, assumptions and generalizations, so things like that. So uh, having written about this topic from an academic and scholarly perspective for decades, uh, you know what it's like. It's often uh, not something that's really digestible to the general public with all the terminology that you use within a, a, a scholarly area. So I wanted to write something that was going to appeal to the general public and uh, and to to really look at language over time. So not, not only the words that we use today, uh, uh, but to, to look at what these words mean today and what they mean, meant historically as well, so to, to go into some etymology uh, and to, to try to explain how words are offensive and, and why they're offensive as well. Mm-hmm. So you're really diving into the history of a range of words. So offensive language, sort of a, a wide a wide basket here. Uh, yeah, I look at hundreds of words in the book. Yeah. And and so the the hope here is that for people who are not already familiar with with this this kind of uh, linguistic inquiry, they might might get a sense of why things are considered offensive today. Yeah. Is that the idea? 
Yeah, so it's it's not about telling people how to speak. It's not about censoring language. Linguistics doesn't do that. It's more describing how people speak rather than prescribing language. So it's uh, when people might hear a term and or use a term and then someone checks them and says, oh, you shouldn't use that term. And and they ask, well, why is that offensive? Uh, so this book really tries to tackle that question to explain why people from certain groups find certain words offensive. Uh, because if, if you don't belong to that group, if you're not a, a stigmatized or marginalized group, it can be difficult to understand why certain terms can be offensive. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you're you're a linguist by training. Uh, yes. How did you get to be interested in offensive language as a linguist? I mean, there's obviously lots of things you could think about. Why Why this topic? Oh, that's a good question. And one I haven't really pondered on too much over the years. Uh, I think that my mother, uh, she wouldn't even use euphemisms of profane words like like sugar or something like that, that, that some people might use. Uh, she, I've never heard her swear or cuss. Whereas my father, he, uh, he was very different. He would just let out a, a stream of obscenities all the time, uh, just over the smallest thing. And uh, so I, I guess opposites attract in that regard. But uh, I think I've just always been interested in this kind of language. And particularly coming from Australia, the uh, Australia has a lot of very colourful idioms and terms, and uh, my father in particular would use a lot of terms which are now mostly obsolete. And he was just this great time capsule of uh, of offensive Australian language. And so I think being surrounded by it, it was just something that was curious to me. And then to find out that you could research this topic from an academic perspective, I think, was fascinating to me. So it's been something that stuck with me, and certainly. Nowadays, too, it's been a topic, a topic of, of some importance um, for political reasons and for social and cultural reasons. So it just seemed like a really good time to to write uh, a book on this topic that the average person could read and that it was, wasn't just so full of terminology that uh, you couldn't understand it. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> definitely been been in the news of late, but for yeah. for a long time, but but especially recently. Uh, yes. Let's we'll talk. There are a few few key concepts you you use in the in the book that we'll talk about in a minute. But um, before we get into that, first of all, you mentioned some colorful Australian language, and then you also mentioned that there's a lot of different kinds of offensive language. How mm -hmm. did you choose the particular terms you focus on in the book? Uh, you include a lot, but obviously mm -hmm. you didn't include everything. Oh, yeah. And that I didn't want it to be an encyclopedia, obviously, of offensive language. So it was really a matter of looking at, I guess, key terms uh, and a lot of terms which are used very, very popularly uh, in language today. I look at language in Anglophone countries. So that is countries that speak English. So we're talking about America and we're talking about Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, specifically. And so uh, I, I looked at categories of offensive language. So as I've already mentioned, sexism and racism and ageism, lookism and uh, religious discrimination in language. Uh, so I had all of these different categories and it was really a matter of, I guess, at first collecting these, these bad words and figuring out what ones were salient uh, what ones are, are commonly used today and uh, are are the ones that people have misunderstandings about too that uh, people might use very freely and not understand why they can have hidden connotations of, of offensiveness. 
Uh, so uh, really, I had to scale back because again, it is it's a it's an academic book, but uh, it's meant to be a trade book as well. Um, Cambridge have started a new trade series in linguistics, and so uh, I had to please both the peer reviewers uh, and also to make it understandable. So uh, I tried to not make it too listy because we're dealing with just so many examples, but to to provide some uh, examples that really would resonate with people. Uh, so if we're talking about sexism, uh, to, to just look at the language that people use and, and that people find offensive and that, that really resonate yeah. with people today. Yeah. So you're you're talking about, uh, as you say, a wide range of kinds of offense, and we can we can get into some details here uh, and unpack that a little bit. Uh, sure. But one one more thing before we do some of the setup here, you do use a few uh, more academic terms, like for instance, euphemism, treadmill, and reclamation. <laughs> right. So um, can you explain what those two concepts are? Because they seem to be pretty key in understanding some of the ideas in the book. Yeah, I mean, people often skip introductions. Uh, mm. They can be a little bit drab and boring, uh, but I did want to discuss some key concepts which are highlighted throughout the book. So I mightn't be constantly naming these things, but just to, to give a, a, a brief exp- explanation of what these things mean. So the euphem- euphemism treadmill, I think uh, was initially the phrase was initially used by Stephen Pinker, the, the psychologist, and uh, he does a lot of linguistics work as well. And uh, so he used that term to describe a uh, a phenomenon which seems to a phenomenon which seems to occur uh, in a lot of areas of uh, offensive language. So, for example, terms related to disability, so ableist language, and terms uh, racist terms as well. And uh, so, it's a concept where a word is brought in to get rid of a, a, an offensive term which is is being used. And so, it's a euphemism uh, that is somehow meant to be softening and less offensive than its predecessor. Uh, But what takes place is why it's a treadmill is that uh, when you replace that word, that new word eventually develops negative connotations too. And then that has to be replaced. And so you have this kind of vicious cycle of uh, words which are, are brought in to be less offensive, to be more polite, and then they take on the same connotations of the former words. So the example that uh, Stephen Pinker will often give is where he talks about words related to the toilet. So uh, previously we would talk about a latrine or a privy or a toilet, uh, and so particularly in America we uh, stopped using those terms and now might refer to a, a restroom. Uh, in Australia we might still say bathroom. Uh, so we're trying to be polite about a topic which incite some degree of embarrassment and um, we were trying to lessen the effects of that but then we have to keep re- replacing that term because that uh, that concept is is tarnished right it gets it gets sullied what about yeah. what about reclamation that's in some ways related to this idea of changing uh, the the connotations of a word or, or negating them in some way yeah, so uh, reclamation is very interesting, and it's something that that doesn't happen very often. We find uh, in linguistics that words often become sullied uh, more often than they improve in meaning, and we can give some examples of that later as well. But with reclamation, uh, it's if you've got a, a term which is used against a group of people and is offensive and reveals prejudice, and if that group decide to empower themselves and to, to take back a word and to start using it and imbue that with positive connotations, that can sometimes be effective. So we've seen that with a term like gay uh, amongst the LGBTQ 
community. So uh, historically, gay, I mean, going back hundreds of years ago, gay meant happy. It could mean all kinds of positive things. And then I think it was maybe around the 1920s that it started being used, uh, uh, I think, both by the community, but also against the community. And certainly over the, the decades, it's it's developed negative connotations and it's been used as an insult. Uh, even when I was in school back in the 80s and 90s, gay was used as an insult to mean something uncool uh, in a similar way that uh, lame was used. And uh, so it has been over the, the past maybe two, three decades has been reclaimed by that community and imbued with positive connotations. Uh, so it's it, it doesn't always work, though, uh, but it is a, it's something that a community can absolutely certainly uh, try to do. Uh, to to change language. But again, language is kind of like a runaway train and it can be very difficult to impose something on language. But, you know, certainly we've seen examples of that uh, historically. It's just a really interesting thing. Yeah. Well, good. So we'll keep an eye out for those two concepts as we go on. Now, you've organized the book topically, basically focusing on race and ethnicity, then gender, religion, mental health, physical appearance, and concluding with age. So since we're going to take on this topic, let's let's start with a big one. It's one of the most offensive racial slurs, at least in Anglophone countries. It's typically referred to as the N-word, and that's what I will refer to it here. Now, um, in the book, you explain the words history. You also explain, give stories of some famous examples of people who, who utter it uh, and find themselves in hot water. And I should note that since the book was, was published, there was yet another case in the United States of uh, Donald McNeil Jr. at the New York Times. And, you know, he allegedly uttered the word in a conversation, not as a, in a slurring use, but as a, as a mention to clarify a point. Um, and that's, that's maybe a little different than some of the cases you talk about where people are using a slur. Maybe we could talk about about that. But it really highlights the extreme power of this word to offend, even just in, in any kind of utterance. So why do you think the word is so powerful? And how does the history you describe help us with that? Well, that word has a lot of baggage. I mean, it originally goes back to a Latin term, basically meaning black, but uh, it has become associated with so many negative things in history from uh, enslavement uh, to forced migration, uh, to segregation, uh, lynching. I mean, just all of the abuses that have taken place against uh, the, the black community over the past, I mean, for a very long time, um, but certainly in the, the lifespan of this word over the past couple of hundred years, the, the term has really uh, developed negative connotations. And uh, so this is a good example of that reclamation in that some people within the, the black community have reclaimed the term and that they use it to mean friend or maybe mate, like term we use in Australia. Uh, so it's they're, they're using it uh, and reclaiming it uh, and, and giving it some positive connotations to show, well, I, I'm close to you, I know you, I'm intimate with you, therefore I can use this term and you know that I mean something good and not something bad. So uh, it, it really has a, just a very checkered history. And... Uh, I mean, there. I'm just trying to think of <laughs> all the questions that you asked how to, to answer all of them. Well, yeah, just I mean, I guess the way to start is just the history you describe in the book um, mm -hmm. and how that impacts the the 
the significant power of, of this particular word. Well, and I think that's particularly the case in the United States, too. Uh, I mean, racism absolutely is a thing in Australia uh, and, and other countries, but uh, and it's not really used. I didn't hear it very much growing up in Australia, and I don't hear it very much nowadays here, unless it's amongst the, the black community and it's used in a positive sense. So it's really become very taboo. I would say it's the most offensive word in the English language at the moment. And uh, as you mentioned, it has been used by um, celebrities uh uh, including, well, I think one of the examples I give is Paula Dean. Um, so she hasn't used it recently, but I think she used it going back some time ago. There was a, a lawsuit against her and that came up and she uh, admitted that she'd used that term uh, in a, a negative way, uh, in a, a racial sense, and uh, on a number of occasions. And so I think as a result, she lost a lot of contracts that she had with with big companies and might have lost her TV show. Um so, you know, that kind of falls into the whole cancel culture thing that people complain about. Well, some people complain about and, and say, oh, it's just ruining comedy. It's ru- ruining video games and, and television. Uh, but it's really about accountability. Uh, I, I think America is very forgiving if someone makes a mistake, especially a historical mistake, to come forward and to own it and to say, yes, I did this and, and that was wrong. And here is why I did it. And I don't do that anymore. Uh, so that people can can learn from that so they can become a role model. Uh, but another example was with uh, uh, the comedian Michael Richards, uh, who played uh, Kramer, Cosmo Kramer on Seinfeld. And he was at a, a comedy club and uh, doing a show. And I think a group of people came in, a multiracial group of people, and uh, they were being loud. And so he just started uh, abusing them and they were heckling him back, and so he used that term. But he didn't only use that term. I mean, it's not just a matter of using a bad word. It's also a matter of revealing uh, negative attitudes towards that group of people. So that word can encapsulate that. But he also said a lot more. I mean, he started talking about lynching and and all kinds of things. And I think he thought he was being funny, but he he took it way too far. Um, of course, he did go on to, I think, Letterman and apologised, but it seemed like it was a bit of a disingenuous apology at the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there have been certainly examples of, of people using the term. And, again, it's these words change over time across cultures, so we really do need to take uh, into consideration context. Uh, so it, here we are talking about this this term and we're censoring it. We're saying the, the N-word, um, but, you know, within a book, you have to spell the word out. You're talking about it from more of a clinical perspective. So it, it really depends. I mean, it's it's not to say, oh, we can't say these words. Well, we can, right. uh, but context really matters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's in, this is one of the points that you make in the in the book. It seems is context matters, intention matters, but they're they're not always those are not always enough to um, cancel out the uh, the offense and the sort of tabooness of some language. So you you mm-hmm. mentioned words that sound like the N word, which people avoid anymore talking about someone who's miserly, uh, just because of the the sort of potential for triggering that kind of offense because it's such a deeply uh, dark word in the English Yeah, language. Yeah, we do see that uh, a lot with words that fall out of favor because they simply uh, sound like other words. So not only uh, kind of using a word in a different sense, but also uh, words that are, they might not even be etymologically related, which is interesting when that happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was a case uh, that I mentioned in the book 
and I can't remember all the details, but I think it was an English professor who used the word homophone, talking about uh, words that have uh, similar, uh, the similar uh, uh, phonological relationship, uh, but mean different things. And whoever, someone read it and thought he was talking about homosexuals or, or something like that and uh, was offended and, and he lost his job for that. Uh, so, yeah, we, we certainly see examples of words that pederate uh, over time just because they they somehow resemble that term either in, in the spelling or in the way that they're pronounced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an, and that's an interesting feature too that you, you point out. So let's let's keep going with some of some more examples and I'm I'm going to just continue to speak around them and uh sure, hope our I listeners can, can, can get the them. <laughs> <laughs> um but another sort of flashpoint today uh is gendered language and you talk about mm-hmm. this from a range of angles and so either in terms of pronouns used to refer to people in the third person or gendered language like ladies and gentlemen when addressing mm-hmm. a group of people um so you also talk about the history of the singular they in in the book uh, and and the popularity of gender neutral neutral language. Uh, mm-hmm. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that and explain why you think these changes in language are important. Why why is it important that we do change our language? Um, yeah, well, I think uh, I, we've had different uh, waves of feminism. They're called over the past couple of hundred years, and so in in early years, uh, issues like uh, uh, women having the right to vote and uh, having other legal rights, those were, were uh, at the forefront of, of issues of concern. And if we go back to maybe the 1960s, the 1970s, around the time that you had, I guess you could call it the the, the second wave of feminism or, or even third wave of feminism, people began examining, or especially feminists began examining language and realising that there seems to be a, a gender bias in the way that we talk. And uh, so, I mean, I do cite a lot of examples in the book, but this can be things like uh, using terms like mankind to talk about both men and women and uh, phrases like all men are created equal. Uh, And, you know, often when we have terms too, we might talk about an actor and that is the unaffected term. That's the kind of main term. Um, And then actress is the the affected form. So it seems like women are always somehow secondary to men and that men somehow constitute uh, uh, the, the more superior version. And, and that's an interpretation that, that you can have. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this language has really, sexism is really embedded in the, the English language in this way. And so we have been changing a lot of these terms since the 1960s and the 1970s, for example, talking about uh, a chairperson instead of a chairman. Um, so you've got lots of guidebooks which are out there too, which address a lot of these issues. Uh, and so it's, you know, we, we, language is constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. And uh, this has been of concern for, for decades. Uh, so a lot of things that I uncover, then there's nothing new about it. But it is it is interesting that if we look at a lot of terms um, for women too, um, like uh, uh, courtesan, uh, or uh, even a term like tart um, that that used to come from sweetheart, and uh, so we'll find that mistress as well used to be the equivalent to the word the uh, honorific master, and a lot of these terms have pedurated over time, and they've come to they've gone from being a term of status and power, uh, and, and basically being brought down to a, a place where they're referring to women in in uh, 
uh, in a sexual sense um, or as being lesser somehow. So it's just just interesting that that keeps happening to terms related to women. Uh, so as for singular they, a lot of people rail against that today. And we see that a lot. People will rail against the introduction of new terms and and they'll really complain about it and, uh, oh, I'm not going to use this, I'm going to resist this. But language still continues to evolve and do its own thing despite you know, people's opinions. But uh, the singular, the form singular they has been used by many authors for hundreds of years. That form was used by uh, Chaucer. It's been used by Jane Austen. Um, so the fact that people are now taking that on as a, a personal pronoun um, is not really uncommon. But a lot of people who think, well, generic he is the, the most uh, uh, accurate form. But a lot of these uh, ways of talking really go back to maybe the 19th century, maybe even a bit earlier too, where you had grammar books. And really, there's nothing scientific about these books at all. It's just the preferred way of talking at that time. Some of them were written by um, clergy, members of uh, the clergy. And so it was really, here's the way to speak if you want to be seen as being a uh, uh, articulate and you want to be seen as being educated. So it was really a kind of privileged thing uh, where it was you know, posh boys in expensive boarding schools who were, were taught that this is the way that we should speak. Uh, so that's more of that kind of prescriptive language that I was talking about earlier, um, where you're told, oh, you shouldn't end a sentence with a preposition and, and all of these rules. And um, you know, that that's really might be a more standard way of speaking and you in, in opposition to non-standard dialects and varieties of speaking. But it's not to say that those other ways are wrong or that they're bad or they're corrupt. Uh, they're just associated with maybe lower socioeconomic groups, things like that. So it's really a kind of value judgment on the way people speak. Yeah. And that seems to be one of the, the themes in your book is showing that what people take to be sort of a a timeless default is in fact grounded in a particular moment of time that's set out by a particular group of people. So folks exactly. who have weird views about Latin <laughs> teach us we shouldn't split infinitives, even, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not relevant in English. And so that then becomes the the sort of standard and, and invisible for, for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these uh, kind of conventions were taken from Latin, which doesn't superimpose perfectly onto English at all. Right. So really, they're just preferred ways of speaking, and they often do show a, a form of prejudice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you you mentioned clergy, so let's we can talk about uh, religious groups too. Uh, that's another uh, another group of people. So you were talking about how offensive language can be about groups of people, uh, categories, and, and things. So you talk about, um, of course, there's anti-Semitic terms, there's uh, uh, Islamophobic terms. And one of the things you discuss in this section uh, is exonyms and how these can be insults. So mm-hmm. what, what's an exonym? How does it operate as a pejorative? Uh, so that is uh, an exonym can be a word that is used by a, um, a group of people to whom that, that word refers. So, for example, if we're talking about Jew, and that's one of the examples that I give in the book, some people think, oh, Jew is offensive. And I think it's because of the the long history of anti-Semitism. Uh, people think it might sound a little bit too harsh to their ears and they should say a Jewish person instead. And we, we can talk about this later, talking about person-first language and 
uh, identity first language, things like that. But uh, I, I think I grew up saying Jewish person. To me, it sounded more polite. And so I think there's been a bit of a backlash amongst uh, some people. So not necessarily uh, people who practice uh, Judaism, but also people who identify as being cultural Jews. And they've thought, well, what's wrong with this term Jew? There's nothing wrong with it. It's descriptive. You know, I am a Jew. Uh, and so you'll see that thing, I think, in, in all of these areas, in, in sexism and racism, where people will say, uh, well, I'm going to take back this term. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but yeah, I think in that instance, people have good intentions and they're they're trying to be polite and you might hear the same thing too with uh, talking about a Muslim person. Um, but it's sometimes if you use a, uh, an, a nominal form, a noun, it, it can come across as offensive if you talk about a group of people as blacks instead of black people or if you talk about uh, Asians instead of Asian people or Mexicans uh, instead of Mexican people. It can sometimes invoke the idea of, of stereotypes about those groups of people. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the sort of person, person first language. What do you mean by that phrase and, and how does that impact offensiveness here? So I go into that mainly in the chapter on ableism. So when mm-hmm. I'm talking about people with disabilities, so there's there's an example. Um, so if we talk about person first, we might be talking about a person with schizophrenia or a person um, with a disability. And uh, so some people have a preference for that form. Other people might prefer to use the uh, their their identity first, and uh, to because they they I obviously identify with that. So uh, you you'll get people who um, people with autism who prefer to say, you know, I'm autistic. I'm an autistic person. Um, so in that regard, it's really just a, a matter of I think it's a, a changing, constantly changing thing too, where some people may prefer saying, well, I, you know, I'm a schizophrenic. Um, historically and nowadays might might say oh, I'm a person with schizophrenia I'm a person first and this is just a part of me um, whereas an autistic person might think well no this is this is my identity I identify as being autistic that's more important than necessarily referring to me as as a person to say that I'm I'm autistic so uh, that really just comes up very heavily in in that particular topic and it um, it's just really a matter of personal preference, and you. I think you just have to talk with people, and communicate with them, and see what terms they prefer. Because this is just really a, a changing thing, and people have their arguments uh, for why they think that some terms are are, are more polite than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like there's certain certain terms where uh, the euphemism treadmill maybe has has taken over. So, for instance. Person first language when we talk about race, no mm-hmm. one says colored people anymore. People say person of color, mm-hmm. uh, even though you might think, well, well isn't isn't this the, the same way? There's a general consensus that no, the, this is it's dehumanizing the the other way. But yeah. then within the disabled communities, 
there's divergences among them, and so so some context sensitivity is is necessary. Is that kind of kind of the idea? Yeah. Is taking yeah. taking stock of the context? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And if I can just go back to what you said about a uh, person of color, mm-hmm. I did an interview last week with uh, a wonderful woman, Jamila Bay, and uh, she talks about sex and politics and racism. And uh, she's used to work for NPR and does a lot of radio shows. And so she expressed to me her dislike of the term woman of color or person of color. And so I do mention that in the book that, again, uh, you know, I really can't account for everyone's preferences. It's, it's a matter of communication. Um, but uh, to me, my theory is that it's, it seems in some ways it is, it's close to um, the term colored people, which is really heavily associated with segregation and the days where you had, oh, here's a, a water bubbler for, um, for white people and here's one for the colored people. And so they were always in this kind of binary, you had white people and then the other. And uh, as Jamila was saying too, a uh, person of color can refer to so many different ethnicities and so many different nationalities uh, and identities that she feels uh, what resonates best with her is the term black, that that, is, that that description is better for her, that she wants to be called the black woman. That's how she identifies. Um, so, yeah, it, which makes total sense. But, uh, yeah, I think that certainly, again, it's a case of uh, people doing their best to be polite and using a term that they think is, is polite uh, and not hurtful. But in some instances, you'll have someone who will challenge that and correct you. And again, it's just a matter of listening and, and using what term they prefer. It's pretty easy. People say, oh, mm-hmm. you can't say anything more. Right. Absolutely, you can. Uh, these things are changing and, and always have been. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of keeping up. Yeah. Yeah. And so the point you were making there, too, with the person of color versus a uh, black person is that it seems like, well, the, the context matters. Who Who are you referring to? Are you trying mm-hmm. to refer to a group of people, as you're saying, sort of in opposition to a default white group? Are right. you trying to refer to uh, specifically black women, in which case, uh, you know, women of color isn't going to be quite accurate. So it's, yeah, uh, it's too nonspecific. And you get the same thing, too, with uh, some people uh, with a heritage from Asia who might uh, say, oh, well, don't refer to me as an Asian person. I'm a Chinese person. Um, and then you might get some cases, too, where people aren't very familiar with Asian countries and they might just refer to any person that seems Asian to them as Chinese and, and therefore they're not taking into consideration that, uh, that difference. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think even when it comes to the term like black, there are some people who say, well, that doesn't describe me, I'm brown. Um, and, and so in the interview that I did the other day, we, we did discuss colour categorization and how that's not terribly scientific. I mean, there's no biological basis for uh, for race. And the terms that we use, I mean, my, my son is five years old and he's often he often says, what colour are you? And and, and I, that's a difficult question to answer. I mean, some people would refer to me as white. Um, my skin's kind of pink. Uh, but uh, so it is a really difficult question to answer. And um, these these categorizations were created by Linnaeus and, and other scientists talking about people who were yellow. And that often has very negative connotations today or talking about people um, who are red. And that has negative connotations, too. So it's, it's quite fascinating that we have negative connotations with yellow people and uh, uh, red people and black people, but astonishingly not white people. 
you know, white people that they're seen as somehow being the default and everyone else is coloured. So yeah. you can understand how this must grate against the nerves of most of the rest of the world. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so so grappling here with trying to carve out boundaries with language, which is never going to be precise or free no. of or free of connotations. <laughs> That's right, and uh, yeah, I mean, I did have this discussion maybe about fifteen years ago with a, a lecturer um, at university, and I was talking about a term and saying, "Oh, this term's neutral," and and uh, she said, "No, really, all language is loaded," and. Uh, all language can have positive or negative connotations when you really think about it. And and certainly that's a case with stereotypes. You wanted to delve into that a little bit. And, and you can have positive stereotypes, something like, oh, Asian people are really good at math, or as we'd say in Australia, maths. And uh, that's such a, a generalization and an assumption. And it's so fixed, it doesn't allow for the possibility that uh, not all people are are that way. And uh, so, yes, stereotypes is absolutely something I go into in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you as you say, also Asian. Well, I mean, living myself and working in in Singapore and coming to uh, understand Asia is a big place with lots of fine grained distinctions uh, that that Asian doesn't doesn't capture, as you're as you're saying. Oh, yeah. And Uh, certainly I only touch upon those issues in this book. But Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at prejudice and discrimination in in uh, countries in Asia, it's something entirely different. <laughs> yeah, you would need another. You would need a whole different different book for a different different group of of people, Anglophone speakers in other countries. That Absolutely. Are, you know, et yeah. So it's it's. And again, this is just a this is a snapshot. Uh, mm-hmm. As I say, um, we can look at at language uh, diachronically, which is over time, which is what I do to some point, and uh, synchronically as well, which is kind of taking a snapshot. So this book. You know, uh, if I do say so myself, it is going to uh, you know, be redundant in you know, 10, 15 years. Hopefully I can do a, a revised version. But uh, these, these things are changing all the time and uh, it, it's not too difficult to keep up with it all. Yeah, well, and it'll be a snapshot of a particular period in time, which is, which is an important uh, resource to have as well. Yeah, see, it has see what value. things look like. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's say just a little bit more about the the religious groups in that mm-hmm. chapter. Is there a particular uh, word or history that you think would be helpful for our listeners to to get a sense of those kinds of terms? Gee, uh, I really I think I focus on uh, anti-Semitism and I focus on Islamophobia, and <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a bit croaky. The there are some complaints that people have with the term Islamophobia, um, because if you look at terms that have that uh, suffix phobia, that's implying some kind of psychological condition. It's like talking about claustrophobia, that you have a fear of, of small spaces, um, and perhaps to some extent, you you do have an irrational fear uh, in in some communities of of uh, Muslim people, but uh, I do think that uh, most people. Most Muslim people would prefer to talk about anti-Muslim prejudice or anti-Islam prejudice, and you will you will have a lot of people too who say, oh, who who are Islamophobic or who are um, anti-Muslim, who will say, look, I'm I'm just com- I'm talking about the uh, the religion. I'm not talking about the people, but it's really hard to separate the religion from the people when you're talking about the religion. Typically, you're talking about the people, you're talking about the culture, you're talking about the history. You can't really separate those things. Uh, so, yeah, I, I um, 
I think those are really the focuses. And I think Islamophobia and anti-Muslim prejudice, they have been uh, of great concern in America and Australia too and, yeah. uh, and other countries just over the past maybe four, five years. And we've really seen a resurgence of that. And uh, it's so interesting because we just go through these periods of uh, having an enemy. So we call it othering, uh, us and them. So if we, we talk about us, uh, when we position groups in that way, uh, typically we're saying, oh, we're superior, we're better, we're more cultured, we're more modern. And then this other group, so for example, Muslim people, uh, they are backward and, and they are savage and uh, barbarians and and they are uh, against modernity and uh, you know you, you're positioning them in this negative light and so in terms of stereotypes too you're saying this about an entire group of people you're not allowing for any kind of differentiation across people uh, for the fact that you you're writing off millions of people just with your, your stereotypes and um, you know, stereotypes may occasionally have a grain of truth uh, but usually it's just a, an assumption that doesn't have any any basis in actuality. Yeah. And um, so ca- but, characterizing Muslim people by things like a particular kind of clothing or... Uh, yes. So identifying differences maybe in, in the foods that they eat or the foods they don't eat, uh, the way that they dress, being different to us. And uh, there was uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister in, in England, uh, Britain, he had re- referred to maybe 10 years ago, he'd referred to women wearing um, veils as looking like letterboxes. And, uh, and I mean, he, he said a lot of things uh, over the years about that group of people. And uh, uh, you really, I think we can be so tribal in our beliefs that just the smallest thing that can be seen as a difference will be enough uh, to, to set us apart and for us to hate that other group and to, to be fearful of them. And uh, it, it really has a, a, uh, a, goes back thousands of years, I think, mm-hmm. this, this kind of prejudice and discrimination, yeah. fear of the people of the other. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're saying, this sort of dehumanizing by using food or clothing as a sort of metonymical shorthand for a whole group of people, often without awareness of, for instance, the distance, the difference between a burqa and a niqab and the different kinds of clothing, um, mm-hmm. that, that, that sort of totalizing, I think is a, it's, it's important for the, uh, Islamic context that you're talking about, but also just, it seems like a general theme again, throughout a lot of the kinds of offensiveness in these, yeah. these words. Oh yeah. I think a lot of people, um, see that kind of headgear as being oppressive but for women, and there are certainly some Muslim women who think, oh, it's, it's oppressive and I'm not going to dress that way, um, especially if they're living in an Anglophone country. But there are certainly many other women and it, it's uh, not a sign of oppression to them. It's a sign of their heritage and their identity. And it just means so much more. And yet you've had these cases of uh, women who've had their veils stripped off them. And um, I mean, even cases of Amish people where people have cut off their beards and, you know, they've been growing their beards, they're men who've been growing their beards their entire lives uh it's just such a violation such a a a physical attack against a person and people get really violent about people having different beliefs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (coughs) well let's um let's shift gears to talk about another kind of um categorization and differentiation and that's the chapter 
on uh, words about mental health. And mm-hmm. one of the big ones, I think, is the, the word crazy that people use to refer to things that are unusual or strange. But you, you trace the origin of this word back to the 17th century and talk about how that word has some, some connotations that are, are not, uh, not great. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we, again, we need to look at context and uh, the usage, not only meaning, but uh, you absolutely get people who use the word crazy in a positive sense, uh, that something that's crazy good, you know, I'm crazy in love. Uh, all those kinds of phrases. And it is the term is so widely used. And uh, historically, we have this association of crazy with uh, mental illness and the association with uh, terms like lunatic. Uh, and, and so all of these terms that have been used uh, in a very derisive way to talk about people with mental illness and uh, so it, it has been becoming offensive for quite some time. I couldn't tell you exactly how long, but I, <clears throat> excuse me, I know friends who've completely stopped using the term. And I, I find it difficult because it's just really easy to dismiss someone who has different views to us and to say, oh, they're, they're crazy. It's really, really easy to do that. Of course, we've got millions of words in the English language and we can uh, choose alternatives, uh, but it's it is one of those difficult ones that's certainly going to be around for some time, but it's becoming more and more offensive because of its its connotations. We see the same thing too with a word like stupid. I know people who won't use the term. Um, and then other people will say, well, look, if I'm if I'm criticizing an idea and I'm saying that's a stupid idea, I'm not criticizing uh, a, a person as being stupid. But in a sense, you are. If you're talking about an idea or a policy or a thing as being stupid, usually there's a person that's behind that too. Um, so again, it's not my position to say don't use these words. It's just a matter of uh, explaining what they they have meant and what they mean today and how people interpret them today, and then you make that decision. But it's very likely that these terms, uh, although sticking around, will become more and more offensive over mm-hmm. the years. So you're you're essentially giving readers a chance to understand why someone might say, "Hey, I know you you don't intend to call anyone crazy, but when mm-hmm. you say, "Hey, that's really crazy," here's why I hear this in an offensive way." And then the reader can sort of decide whether they want to refrain from it entirely, be more mm-hmm. judicious, or etc. Yeah, I really this these are it's a book of tools. It's information. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take it or you can leave it. But I think you'd be hard pressed to read the book and to not reflect more closely on the way that you speak and, and the the attitudes and the values and beliefs that uh, emerge from the way you speak and to, to really start um, nutting that open and, and reconsidering the things that you say. Yeah, yeah. So another uh, term in the book that you use uh, is lookism. And mm-hmm. this is, it overlaps with concerns about ableism and disability and also gender and other categories. One of the interesting uh, discussions that I found in that chapter was talking about hair color. Uh, and, and I know this is for the folks in the U.S., talking about someone being ginger isn't necessarily uh, that that strange or, or doesn't trigger that much. But for people in the U.K. and other contexts, it can be. Uh, and maybe in the U.S. context, blonde is the, the more dangerous sort of category. What's, what's the deal with this focus on hair? What's going on here? <laughs> Excuse me, another cough. 
Um, so I would like to just go back to the first point that you made and, and to say there is a lot of overlap, I think, throughout the book. If you're looking at religious discrimination, you're going to often find that there's racism underpinning that too. If you look at sexism, you'll often find that there's racism and sexism are intertwined. And so certainly with lookism. Now, lookism isn't as popular of a term as ageism or racism, uh, but it but it is one way to describe discrimination against people on the way that they look, and that can be because they it's a person with a disability. Um, it can be because of uh, the clothing choices that they have that a goth person wears all black, or it can be because of your hair color. And uh, so yeah, that was a, a kind of a fun and interesting topic. And it's again one of these things is going to change across culture and time, uh, but you. If you look at uh, red hair, now I'm somewhat of a redhead. Um, my my son is has more of a kind of strawberry blonde hair. And uh, quite recently, I met one of his teachers at school who, for the first time, and she said, "Oh, now I see where your son gets his gorgeous red hair from." And uh, so it seems to be a positive thing in America. And in Australia, I think people can kind of take it or leave it. Now, um, my father had some offensive older Australian phrases that he would use about um, people with red hair. And you have stereotypes about people with red hair, the red-headed stepchild uh, that they're, they're associated with, I think, because of the colour, associated with fire and associated with things like anger and uh, being tempestuous and uh, all these kinds of uh, traits and people will even make judgment calls about uh, their their skin and their freckles and uh, that they burn easily. And so it's just quite astounding how much over time redheads have been discriminated against. And, uh, you know, on the surface, it mightn't seem like it's very much, but uh, I think I can't remember the term, but uh, there was a, a term that was used in, in France uh, until quite recently. And it I think basically referred to people with red hair as Judas. And so I think there was this belief, if we go back into Christianity, um, that that Judas was redheaded. And so therefore, you know, that's a, a kind of slight against him. And uh, uh, yeah, so I do go into a lot of examples in the book. I mean, you have positive stereotypes of people with red hair as well, like um, uh, was it Pippi Longstocking and uh, Anne of Green Gables. I mean, I grew up loving those those Canadian books. And uh, so you, you've got positive stereotypes where men will think, oh, women with red hair are just gorgeous and sexy. And uh, even an idea that all redheads are Irish. And that's not true. I think there's a greater population of redheaded people in uh, Scotland than there is in, in Ireland. Uh, but they're so rare. It's something like, I think, less than 2% of the, the population. Um, but in in England, as you mentioned, it it is it's really rampant. I mean, people people in America would would be astonished at the the kinds of prejudice that the redheads receive, and so they are called gingers. And so again, that, that kind of goes back to that blacks or Mexicans. Uh, it's kind of dismissing a group with this this noun, and uh, a lot of stereotypes encapsulated with that term. And, uh, I mean, I go into some examples in the book of uh, redheaded people who have been hounded out of their homes, hounded out of their communities. Uh, there was a some comedy show, I think it was the Catherine Tate show that I watched years ago, and there was a, a uh, skit about uh, a woman who had red hair and was sent to some kind of home um, because of her red hair. And so there's this collective of, of redheaded women living there uh, in, in fear of the rest of society. And I think 
I think, unfortunately, there's some truth to that, particularly in Britain. And you have a long history in Britain of discrimination against um, Irish people and Scottish people and a lot of assumptions and stereotypes associated with them. So I think it really goes back to that. But uh, it's just, again, if we can't discriminate on people on the basis of their skin colour, then we'll look to hair colour instead. It's We're terrible. <laughs> it's always something. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess for the sake of time we'll we'll move on but just to note that in the in the in the US context and, and other places you talk also about blondes and of course that intersects with uh, with gendered assumptions in particular about well, about like, blonde women yes yeah, so i guess that the stereotype of uh, women in particular who are blonde that they're dumb the dumb blonde the blonde bimbo uh, and and we might have some stereotypes about that associated with some men but usually it's women so again you've got that that overlapping yeah. So let's let's talk quickly about the last um, bit in in the book, which is about ageism, and mm-hmm. uh, this is something that I, I don't know. It seems relatively recent to me that there's a lot of discussion about generations, for instance, online, especially like millennials versus Gen Z or versus boomers. The yeah. Gen Xers, like like me, just we nobody talks about us. We're totally left out. Yes. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it seems like there there are ways to either implicitly or explicitly categorize and uh, insult or, or stereotype people negatively by age. So what are some examples mm-hmm. of that and, and why is it harmful, do you think? Well, ageism, I finished with that because uh, with that topic because I think it's something that if we're lucky enough, we're all going to encounter. And that is really one of the premises of the book too, that you know, do we want to, to uh, be prejudiced against people knowing that we're all going to be prejudiced against for, for some reason at some point. So yeah, ageism is really something that cuts across all of those other categories. Uh, but it's it's something that's so interesting because we really internalize ageism. And as we're growing up, we hear all of those phrases about being over the hill and, uh, and just other idioms and, and terms. And it just seems like it's really one of those last acceptable forms of discrimination. And, uh, I mean, my, my father unfortunately passed away late last year and he was in a, thank you, he was in a, a nursing home and uh, I mean, we can talk about that too. Some people find the term nursing home to be offensive. We should talk about aged care because uh, there's a lot of infantilization when it comes to, to talking about older people. Um, but he would talk about not liking being there. Um, so my, my brother put him there. I didn't have any say in it, but uh, he, he would talk about the old people there and how he hated being around these old people. Even at his age, in his 80s, he was separating himself from these other people. Um, but ageism really does affect all groups. It not only affects older people, and that's the traditional, more salient version of ageism, uh, but it certainly affects middle-aged people. Uh, and you have ideas of uh, midlife crises, and that's another kind of sexist thing against men. Um, but absolutely, you have ageism against children. And uh, so some people would refute this and say, oh, it doesn't exist. Uh, but there are terms for it. There's adultism or childism. And, uh, you know, historically, we've been very mean to kids. They should be seen and not heard. And we talk about the terrible twos. And, uh, I mean, we we really do stifle kids in many ways and refer to them as little brats and, and monsters, that kind of thing. And then of course there's discrimination against teenagers too. And we talk about them as just being useless and lazy and 
uh, and just all of the stereotypes associated with being a, a teenager. And we know how difficult it is. I mean, every stage of life is difficult for one reason or another. And so we should try to have compassion uh, across age. Um, but yeah, we we really do just uh, accept a lot of these terms and and uh, the the hurtful uh, birthday cards. I went to a birthday a couple of years ago of a friend and and uh, his his wife, uh, now wife, she said, uh, don't mention his age, don't talk about it. And so we, we didn't. And uh, he was turning 50 at the time. And uh, we, we certainly, I think it's particularly difficult for women. There is that kind of double standard where as men age, they become more, uh, you know, debonair and, and they, they age gracefully, that kind of thing. And whereas yeah, yeah. And with women, there's a lot of pressure on women to to stay young uh, and to do all kinds of things to you know, anti-aging preparations and things like that. And then at the same time, if they try to take care of themselves, oh, they're vain, oh, they're superficial. They're, they're uh, it just, it's very difficult for everyone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and the, the ageism thing too with the older uh senior, older, I'm not sure again, which term is, is best here, but, uh, there was another interview I did with some, um, cognitive cognitive linguists thinking about aging and language and mm-hmm. talking about how these stereotypes negatively impact people's, uh, linguistic, uh, and memory capacities as they grow older because they internalize them. So yes. it seems yeah, like there's just studies. really, yeah, there've been some studies to show that, but certainly if we talk about, uh, age in other ways, age about objects and things, we talk about aged things and vintage things, and there are positive connotations of, of antiquity and value. So if we talk about vintage cars, if we talk about aged cheese, uh, these things are seen as being of value. But when we talk about older people, uh, we're, we, we really write them off when they hit a certain age. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, and further to what we were saying earlier, that a lot of terminology we use when we're talking about older people um, can really be infantilizing. We we talk to older people like they're they can't hear us, and we talk to them or, or like they're not even there, like they're not even in the room. Uh, and yes, and and we can talk about even the things that they they use uh, uh, as referring to them as though they're in childhood still, and that is completely negating their life's experiences and all of their accomplishments and the people that they've become and just acting as though, oh, they've returned to some kind of childish state, which is is unfair. Yeah. Yeah. And even the idea that a childish state is is not fully a person too, like you were saying, kind of connects up with the idea that we don't treat children in some ways very, very well that just because yeah. just because children don't have a full intellectual capacities yet as they're growing doesn't mean right. they're they're subhuman or less than a than a person right and it's like we're it's like we're dismissing the very young and the, the and older people too and mm-hmm. even with terms that we use like the the old or the elderly mm-hmm. um, anytime we talk about groups people in terms of groups like that we're just uh, looking at them for one aspect of their identity and we're dismissing all of their other accomplishments and everything mm-hmm. else about those people. So Yeah. Well, I think that your book then throughout the conversation, we just see over and over again these various ways in which our language enables us to categorize, which is a good thing about language, but it brings in all of these potentials for dehumanization yes. and uh, negative connotations. And 
if it's not possible to stop the euphemism treadmill, at least we can be more aware while we're on it. Uh, mm-hmm. What, <laughs> how we can become compassionate in our in our language use to others, or just be aware yes. of what we're doing and reflect on it. Exactly, and and again, as I've said several times throughout the the interview, just to to speak with people and ask what are the preferred terms, what term do you prefer to use, and people are always happy to say, well. Mm-hmm. I refer to myself this way yep. and uh, to use those terms and to, to listen to other people because to, to put ourselves in their shoes. Yeah. Great. Well, let me close just by asking now that this book is out, uh, what else are you working on right now? I'm working on several different projects. Uh, nothing that is that I have a contract for at this point, but uh, yeah, just a number of different things. Uh, I guess one that I'm trying to finish up now is a, a chapter for a book about uh, pop, pop psychology. And uh, I've written in the past about this strange concept called spectrophilia, which is the belief that humans can have relationships with uh, other beings like aliens or uh, maybe demons and ghosts. So, yeah, it's a strange topic. Uh, but, I again, I've written about it in the past, and so I was tasked with writing this chapter. But there's a lot more history to it and uh, – a lot more, it's more academic than you would think. <laughs> right, right. Like different cultural contexts. Is, is that the idea where, where this yeah, appears? So, uh, yeah, so looking at this throughout uh, folklore and mythology and also mm-hmm. popular culture. And then you've got some more modern day claims too, where a lot of celebrities have said they've had relationships with ghosts. And uh, so you've got that kind of more uh, you know, personal account. Mm-hmm. angle too but it's a it's a strange topic interesting and this is apart from the the famous movie of course right with uh whoopi goldberg and and well, i do mention that yeah I, I can't write about that topic without mentioning that and the ghost and mrs muir and there's a, a right. lot of kind of right. fantasy and romance yeah. uh, and fiction and true stories apparently to movies like the entity so hmm. interesting <laughs> well be be on the be on the lookout for that uh, <laughs> In the meantime, thank you so much for, for all your time taking us through through the book today. It really does. It's a sort of a whirlwind tour through a lot of different um, words and a lot of different histories. So thank you for it that. Is. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Malcolm. Really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you.